snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? There's an inordinate number of poisonous snake bites uh, that we see and care for here. Statistically, if you look at the numbers, if you're going to get bit by a copperhead, um, you're going to be in Pitt County. It's pretty amazing. And if that isn't enough? My wife comes into the backyard and she said, a man just came to the front door and said that he would be more than happy to spray our garden for black widow spiders. And I said, nah, we don't need that. We're good. I went back under this playset that I had just built and I looked up and sure enough, there was this giant black widow. And beware of flowers. It's amazing. You look at a plant and you have absolutely no idea what it contains. Is it poisonous? Is it medicinal? Or is it just pretty and smells good? I'm Rich Clindworth. We're talking about the poisons, toxins, and venom that surrounds us in season three, episode five of Talk Like a Pirate. We're joined now by Dr. Jason Hack, who is a professor of emergency medicine at East Carolina University's Brody School of Medicine. He is a triple board certified physician in emergency medicine, medical toxicology, and addiction medicine. His specialties include alcohol intoxication and withdrawal, drugs of abuse, snake bite therapeutics, and poisonous plants. He is the 2022 recipient of the Outstanding Contribution to Medical Toxicology Research Award from the American College of Medical Toxicology. On top of that, he is a photographer with his photos being displayed in museums and galleries all along the East Coast. And if that's not enough, he's an inventor. Dr. Hack, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, chat with you about uh, what I've been doing. Typically, whenever you're watching television shows, oh, you wait for the toxicology report. You don't necessarily think about snake venom or poisonous plants, or at least the average person might not. Sure. I mean, you know, Paracelsius, as uh, an ancient toxicologist, said that um, nothing, uh, nothing is without their poison. It's the dose that makes up poisoning. So you can eat one M&M and be absolutely fine. You can eat, you know, force yourself to eat 500 M&Ms and probably not feel very well. It's just a matter of degree of exposure. And that's true for our natural world also. Sometimes they eat the, you know, the wrong things. Mushrooms are a great example of that. You know, they People go and forage because they think they're familiar with a specific mushroom and pick something that they're unfamiliar with and make a meal out of it and end up uh, becoming injured from it. Things are out there that can potentially hurt you, and you just want to be careful right, and knowledgeable about it. You're from New York originally. Correct. What brought you to East Carolina University? When I finished a four-year emergency medicine residency at Bellevue, um, and I finished my two-year fellowship at the New York City Poison Center, I threw a wide net to try and find a job. My friend, colleague, and mentor, Dr. Bill Meggs, uh, who is a medical toxicologist here, was the director of medical toxicology here in the Department of Emergency Medicine. He called me up and said, I'd love you to come down to Greenville, North Carolina. And my wife and I came down, and we loved it. Our three-year plan turned into a five-year plan, seven-year plan, and then almost a 10-year plan before uh, we moved back north. And then you came back. Right. So I went to Brown University, where I was the director of medical toxicology and director of medical toxicology uh, education for the Department of Emergency Medicine at Brown University for 12 years. My youngest child went to college and my wife and I looked at our empty nest and said, where would you like to go next? Again, I was contacted by Bill who said, how would you like to come back to Greenville, North Carolina? And we jumped at the chance. 
So you're from New York. Do you have many snake bites up there? We had rare snake bites up there. Again, I'm from New York City, so Brooklyn specifically, Manhattan, you know, is is right adjacent. Um, that's where I grew up and practiced. So mm, there are no real native snakes there. In upstate New York or New Jersey, which is, again, close by, sure. But in the city itself, not native to the, to the environment. However, people are, um, you know, do exceptional things and uh, will occasionally buy poisonous snakes uh, off the internet. And sometimes they would show up in the emergency department and we would care for them. Certainly not at the rate of snake bites that we see here at ECU. What was your reaction whenever you came here to Eastern North Carolina and being here still in the amount of snake bites we get? There's an inordinate number of poisonous uh, snake bites uh, that we see and care for here. Uh, it always felt to me like we were seeing a, an enormous number. And uh, the American Academy of Poison Centers nationally puts out an annual uh, listing of the frequency of specific exposures. The number one snake bite for a long period of time was always rattlesnakes in the southwest of the country specifically. And I, it always felt wrong to me. And then about, gosh, 2016 or 17, I'm not 100% what year it was, but the numbers of copperheads, which is the primary snake bite that we see here, crossed over and took the number one slot for the most bitey snake in the United States. And that felt right. Statistically, if you look at the numbers, if you're going to get bit by a copperhead, um, you're going to be in Pitt County. Frequency of bites. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> it makes me feel so good being around here. I would say that I and my family do not forage under bushes. Um, if, I, if I'm playing golf and it goes under a bush, uh, my hand is not under the bush. With eastern North Carolina, we have the, the copperhead, the rattlesnake, the water moccasin, and the coral snake. What of those four is the most serious? Uh, let's do it this way. If you're going to get bit by a, by a viper in North Carolina and you, you have to choose one, I would choose the copperhead. Okay. I, I would go that way. The other ones, the venom is more aggressive, more potent, and more damaging. And there are various aspects, right? So I've seen in my career here pygmy rattlesnake, right? So pygmies are tiny little snakes um, that bite you, but their venom is extremely potent. I wouldn't volunteer for that one. The eastern diamondback rattlesnake is one of the largest vipers in the entire country. So it delivers a lot of venom and it's nasty venom. I would not volunteer to get bit by that snake. Water moccasins or cottonmouths are slightly less potent, but nasty, right? You would not want, and aggressive snakes, you would not want to get bitten by them. Copperheads cause a lot of swelling, a lot of discomfort, rarely life-threatening, as long as it's taken care of appropriately. And how do you take care of it appropriately? First and foremost, um, if someone gets bitten by any venomous snake, you want to get to a hospital and get assessed, right? Because once um, you're in a healthcare environment, you can be assessed by an expert who will make the determination of what the next steps are. Is this something that can be watched or whether this person needs to be given antivenom? And we have very effective antivenoms that work for any of the North American vipers. Is there a different procedure depending on what type of snake you should do on your way to, the, to seeking medical attention? The general first aid advice is keep the patient calm, keep the appendage, if it was a hand or a foot, in a dependent position. 
again, get them as quickly and safely to a hospital so they can be assessed. Things that have been tried um, in the field that are absolutely not recommended are some people say, you know, electric shocks or apply a tourniquet or cut and suck the wound. Um, these are horrible ideas. They don't save people's lives and they should not be done. But they look good on movies. They're very dramatic. You know, I mean, just, just think about it this way, right? So your buddy gets bit by a snake that their venom is tissue toxic, right? Which means it causes a lot of edema and, and swelling. So just imagine the danger that you put yourself in, right? So you're the only person that can get them to, to the hospital. And yet you're going to cut into them and put your mouth potentially on that venom, right? That we know swells you. So you put the hole that you breathe through <laughs> your mouth intentionally onto this perhaps pool of venom, and then you're the ride to the hospital, right, with your mouth swelling up. I would say don't do that ever, ever, ever. And this brings us to your invention. You invented a device that if you got bitten in a certain area? The clinical scenario is you get bit by a toxic snake and you are far from definitive care. Let's say you're on a mountain, you've hiked three hours into the mountain. So your time back from that point to your car or right is three hours plus. If it's on a hand or a foot, which by far is the most common areas of people getting bit, there are techniques such as compression immobilization bandages. You wrap the extremity from the bite site towards the torso or towards the abdomen if it was a leg, not tighter than you would for, you know, like a tight sock, definitely not a tourniquet, just to compress, again, the lymphatics, right? Most venom is transported proximally through the lymphatics. If you are unfortunately envenomated, right, directly into a vein, there's not a whole lot that you can do. But most overwhelming number of bites inject the venom into the soft tissues, and the lymphatics carry it towards your heart, right, towards your heart and your lungs and your brain and all of these important organs. So I started to think, well, what if I get bit in the 95% of the rest of me, you know, on my abdomen, if I get bit on my chest or my shoulder or, or some, something like that, or, a th or, you know, a thigh, would pressure mobilization work? I looked in the research and I very quickly came to realize that there's essentially no advice that I could see. And I started playing with some idea, and I, I, uh, I remember having a dream um, about this uh, one night where somebody comes into their sleeping bag and they get bit by a rattlesnake on their, on their torso. And I was thinking, what would I do if it was me? So what I came up with in, in the moment, essentially take my coffee cup and put it over the bite and tie my belt around it and squeeze the tissue around the bite site to hold it there. And then I'd start traveling to get to definitive care. Over the next couple of weeks, I stole my kids uh, model clay and I started playing with ideas. That was the origin of what ultimately came to be Venom Lock. So basically it's a device that's elliptoid in shape and it's designed to be held on by straps around your body without being a tourniquet, right? Because again, tourniquets are very bad. We don't do that ever, but it squishes the soft tissues around the bite site and potentially would hold the venom in that site. Partnering with uh, ECU, um, I then uh, went to the laboratory and we were granted a patent in 2014, I think. And it's available on Amazon. It's called Venom Lock, L-O-C-C. -C. It's localizing circumferential compression, L-O-C-C. -C. So it's Venom Lock. I'm aware of one case where somebody was um, actually bitten on the hand and they actually contacted me and told me about it and were thrilled with the results. 
I'm pleased. I don't think I'll ever see money from it. That is not my goal. If I save one life from a crazy dream um, in the world, I'm, I'm totally happy with it. But that's got to be a great feeling whenever they contacted you. and it's Phenomenal. There's a saying, if you save one life, you've saved the world. Uh, I don't know if I saved a life, but it certainly felt good. Snakes aren't the only dangers that lurk in our backyards here in Eastern North Carolina, are they? We have black widow spiders. By report, we have brown recluse, uh, although I've personally not seen a brown recluse bite. I've absolutely seen black widow spider bites here. How serious are those? Rarely fatal, typically only fatal for the very, very young or the very old and infirm. People don't like it. It's essentially neurotoxic and can cause muscle spasms and profound diaphoresis. People feel terrible, fainting and a lot of pain. There is an antivenom for it and used only, again, in rare circumstances. Uh, most people do very well with supportive care. So fluids and antiemetics and uh, benzodiazepines for muscle spasms and, you know, things to keep them comfortable while the venom wears off. It may be several days, but most people survive. I found them in my backyard. Oh, really? Yes. What's that reaction once you realize what it is? I was less than thrilled. I had built my children a playset in their backyard structure with a slide and a, and a swing, and I was underneath it tightening up some screws and my wife comes comes into the backyard and she said uh, a man just came to the front door and said that he would be more than happy to spray our garden for black widow spiders for x amount of money and i said nah we don't need that you know we're good i went back under this playset that i had just built and i looked up and sure enough there was a black <laughs> this giant black widow that had just captured a, a large wasp and was actively wrapping it up as I was underneath it. And I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have sent that person away and did a lot of spraying myself. But we caught the black widow. We had it in a jar on our backyard and we fed it grasshoppers. And I got a chance to teach my children about black widows and um, the webs that they uh, make, which is this very disjointed, disorganized appearing web. If you see that, be aware that you might have a black widow hanging around, pay attention. The brown recluse. I've seen pictures and I've heard horror stories about people losing limbs and that sort of thing. I don't know if they, people lose limbs, but you can, it causes a necrotic injury, a progressive necrotic injury that once it begins, it can develop over a week or so. And unfortunately, we don't have any definitive care for it. So you need to be careful. It's a small brown spider. The bite does not hurt, which is in contrast to a black widow spider bite that hurts brown recluse bites don't hurt. So you might not initially know that you've been bitten until it starts, you start to get a, a necrotic wound. There are awesome and horrific pictures online that you can see. The one that I'm specifically thinking of is pictures of their thumb that progressed through time. And I think they actually needed surgical repair at some point. Anything else before we get to the poisonous plants um, outside of the snakes and the spiders? I mean, and bees, if you're allergic. Sure. The hymenoptera are, I mean, statistically kill more people than all of the other insects, as far as I'm aware. Which one's that? Just bees, wasps, you know, people that are allergic to it. Oh, really? Just for allergic reactions kind of thing. But that's, I mean, I guess it's in a way toxicologic, but it's more an allergic reaction. Interesting. I would not have known that. So what type of poisonous plants do we have around here? And do we have a lot? In our environment, we absolutely have the right growing uh, circumstance for poison ivy or poison oak or those oil containing plants that would cause itches and blistering and things like that. But we have more than that around here, correct? Like different flowers? 
going back to where we kind of started, right? Anything in enough dose could be poisonous. I think that's the good first rule of thumb. Also, I want to make sure people see the world around you. You know, put yourself, you know, go for hikes, get outdoors, look at plants, look at gorgeous flowers. There are specific ones, like the ones that I just mentioned, you know, that if you touch them, you'll have a reaction to them, like poison ivy, poison oak. With the exception of those, you're fine. My art, uh, my photographs are about, in great part, the rare plants or flowers that fantastic to look at, but that you probably don't want your kids messing with because they might put stuff in their mouth or that you probably don't want to put on your salad. What types do we have here then on that level here in Eastern North Carolina? What I have quite a few findings of is poisonous mushrooms. I've photographed amanitas, which you would absolutely not want to play with, have your dogs or pets get a hold of, or definitely your kids, because they potentially would cause poisoning and liver damage. There are other mushrooms that would also be very injurious if they were ingested. You know, I was just at a friend's house who had a giant bush of pokeweed growing. Pokeweed is gorgeous and colorful and has these very inviting black berries that grow on it. And I mentioned to her that she probably wants to make sure that her children are aware this is not for eating. Pokeweed can give you a lot of GI upset and uh, is not great for them. These are things that if you kind of don't know what they are, they're very attractive and don't do anything unless somebody decides to be adventurous and take a nibble for the most part. You can definitely find exotic plants both in gardening stores and offline and buy seeds or seedlings uh, from these places of plants that are not necessarily indigenous to wherever you live, in this case, Eastern North Carolina, or grow extremely rarely, right? So you can buy, uh, you know, monkshood. You can buy digitalis. I saw digitalis at one of the large garden stores, uh, you know, Foxglove. Just recently, I bought it. <laughs> Because as a medical toxicologist, you, uh, you, know, you, you have to have your poison garden to teach people about it. Again, for the most part, these things are safe. If they were imminently life-threatening, you wouldn't find them sold so easily, right? It takes some effort to hurt yourself with this and often some misguidedness. It was pretty, so I made a salad out of it, right? Don't do that. Foxglove is hands down probably my favorite poisonous plant. I photograph it every time I find it. I buy it every time I, I can. Uh, I, I love it, right? It's gorgeous. Digiplexus, it's a cultivar. I don't know if I'm using that term exactly right. Uh, I'm sure a horticulturist is yelling at me right now. Digoxin crossbred with a different plant, and the blossoms are fantastic. I have actually that in my show. Gorgeous. And it's supposed to be more hardy, but still contains digitalis, which is poisonous. Although remember that a lot of these things that we're classifying as poisonous are actually medicinals, right? We forget in large part that a lot of our medicines, I'm gonna take digoxin for an example. Digoxin is still used today for people who have heart issues, abnormal rhythm of their heart. So they take digoxin because it's one of the only medicines that slows down and regulates your heart but also doesn't cause a weakening of the squeeze. I don't think we have anything else that does that. All of the other medicines that regulate the, the beating of your heart weaken the squeeze a little bit, right? So beta blockers or calcium channel blockers or, or those things. Now, the downside of digoxin is has a very narrow therapeutic range, so you can get toxic very easily from the additional administration or if you get dehydrated or there's a, your kidney function doesn't work. There's a lot of reasons you can get toxic from it, but 
in the right therapeutic range, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. What a lot of people forget is that the medicines that we take from that pill bottle originated, maybe not the chemical itself that they're actually holding in their hand, but the basis for that chemical grew in the soil, in the sun. I have an image of jimson weed. Jimson weed plant, which is from the Datura species, is the origin for atropine, hyoscyamine, and scopolamine, right? And we use all of those in medicines every day. But in overdose, you take too much jimson weed, you will have adverse effects potentially, hallucinate and have cardiac dysrhythmias, right? And have an anticholinergic toxidrome. It's back to the doses, the poison, right? A little bit, we can use it as a medicine. A lot of it, we can actually get hurt from it. And you could be walking down the street and walk past a jimson weed plant or a moonflower or whatever you want to call it, but not know the history from it. Or that that, in fact, is used to cure people of disease or discomfort. And this is the basis for my photographs and my exhibits. I, I think it's, it's amazing. You look at a plant and you have absolutely no idea what it contains. Is it poisonous? Is it medicinal? Or is it just pretty and smells good? Are there any common colors that lend themselves to poison? That's a fantastic question. The answer is absolutely not. And that's the point. There are no warning colors like bees, the hymenoptera, right? The, you know, insects and animals actually, you know, have warning colors, right? Don't, don't mess with something that has yellow and black stripes on it. Like we know that, right? They're not necessarily warning colors in the plant world. Jimson weed is a white, gorgeous flower. And a gardenia, for example, a, again, a white, gorgeous flower. One is just smells good, and one I wouldn't eat it because it potentially would hurt me. There's no standard. What got you into taking photographs of these plants? I am fairly busy in the emergency department and academically, and uh, it was true at my last job, and it's certainly true here when I was in Rhode Island. It was just getting warmer. And I was spending a lot of time in front of the computer, and my wife noticed, and she said, um, close the computer, you need to go, f <laughs> go for a walk, see the, see the world, breathe fresh air, um, get out of the house. I walked past a home that had this fantastic flourishing garden, and I immediately recognized there were these enormous stands of monkshood, fairly toxic plants, and I'd seen grandchildren in the backyard. Uh, so I knocked on the door and I told her about her plants and we had a little walk through her garden. It was a fantastic garden, but it also had a whole lot of potentially poisonous plants. And I was thrilled from a, from a toxicologic point of view, like, oh my gosh, look at this. So probably a couple of days later, what I had turned this, you know, the, my walk into is actually hunting for these really exquisite, you know, these exquisite looking and fairly poisonous and medicinal plants taking pictures, stalking these plants in my neighbor's yards. And it was great also. I made a lot of friends and it was nice. Now we're recording this in February of 2022. What is this most recent gallery that you're going to have coming up here in Greenville? This show that I'm doing is an exhibit that'll be at the Greenville Science Museum. It's a collection of medicinal, poisonous, or benign flowers displayed with plaques that talk about the flower, any uh, medicines or poisons that are derived from it, some cultural references. Try and make it as uh, interactive as possible, all right? I, I want to appeal to both parents and kids. What is the most beautiful flower that you've taken a picture of? And it's probably the most toxic. I'm always gonna default to foxglove. It is absolutely my favorite. Probably my favorite photograph of a digitalis is actually from above. I'd never seen it imaged from above, you know, displayed before. I have a gorgeous image because it's actually radial. From the top, it comes out like a cone. Come to the show, you'll see. 
the poisons you study aren't necessarily just the environment impacting us, but what we put into our body that could affect ourselves and others. Absolutely. I was able to get involved with a fantastic group of people, again, in Rhode Island, who were involved in trying to make roadways safer by bringing attention to the horrific danger of driving while alcohol impaired. I've spent a lot of time and effort to try and bring this to the public's attention, working with a fantastic group of people in Rhode Island. I'm working hard now to re-engage with people working on this here in, in North Carolina. It's incredibly important. The amount of damage, destruction, and life-changing effects of people who drink alcohol and decide to get behind the wheel of a car, in my opinion, this is an unforgivable thing. In this modern time, there's rarely a time when somebody doesn't have a phone in their pocket that they can't say, you know what, I'm going to call a friend or an Uber or a Lyft or some other car-sharing thing to get me home safely. This has been a national awareness campaign every single year for as long as I can remember, and people are still doing it. They're drinking, they're becoming impaired, and they're getting behind the wheel of a car. The way to stop drunk driving is to impress upon people that they can kill themselves or someone else every single time that they do it. And the fact that they haven't done it yet is just because they've been lucky. You know, the stars haven't aligned. It's not by their skill because the statistics show that they're gonna eventually kill themselves or somebody else or maim somebody. I actually created a photography exhibit of alcohol bottles on the roadside that we used as background for the Department of Transportation conferences that I was a part of. Each image is titled with another word for being drunk, blottoed or smashed or trashed or buzzed. These are terms that are used for people that are alcohol impaired, but they're also, if you actually think about it, terms that are used for violence. And the violence is the, the result of a crash. And then I accompany that with facts about drunk driving. So we've already talked about Venomlock, and in the beginning we called you an inventor. Do you have any other inventions beyond this? I do. I have two others that I'm really also very proud of. When I was at my uh, prior institution, I joined a group of mentors that were working with engineering students. We were asked to theoretically create a product to see if we could develop it. And what my idea was a device that applied high frequency vibration to a small area of skin to cause numbness, a non-invasive technique, like on somebody's arm or wherever you're going to do a shot. And then when they got the shot, they wouldn't feel it. It was called Diavibe. We actually won an award, a, a local research award in Providence. And another really interesting invention, I worked with an artist and engineer to develop a series of blocks in various shapes that are designed to represent qualities of pain. So when a patient goes to their physician and they're talking about pain and they don't have the sophistication perhaps or the ability for whatever reason to describe one aspect of their discomfort. You know, how bad is it? Does it shoot anywhere? What makes it worse? What makes it better? Hot, cold, tearing, crampy, sharp. But to different people, those words mean different things. 
So I started to think about this, like, is there a way where a physician who's not experiencing this discomfort and the patient who is experiencing this comfort, is there a bridge that I can create that they could have a shared understanding of what that discomfort is? And again, I worked with an artist and engineer and we, and we created these blocks of various shapes and then we test piloted it. And then through a period of elimination, we came up with blocks that consistently looks like your pain feels. I'm fascinated by this. That's in development right now. So I have the blocks. We have one study published and there's more work to be done. So congratulations on your research award. Thank you very much. Can you tell us a little bit about it and what you did to get this? I imagine the answer is I've been very lucky to be working with people that are constructive and helpful and supportive of me. I think thanks definitely has to go to my wife, of course, for putting up with me, my children for being on this ride with me and tolerating me stealing their toys to experiment with to figure out these concepts. My parents, of course. I pay attention to the world around me, and when I see something that either isn't right or I think I can do better or has not been explored at all, that's something in large part that attracts me. In terms of venom lock, right, it was the recognition that I couldn't find anything that might help me or one of my loved ones should they be bitten by a venomous snake, you know, again, far from definitive help. Another thing that I did, Hacks Impairment Index, I recognize that there is no description that one could scientifically use to accurately describe the amount of impairment that alcohol induced what drunk is, right? You, you kind of, you hear the word drunk, oh, he was so drunk or she was so drunk. You sort of have an idea of it, but in fact, what does that mean and how drunk? We had no common language that a medical person could use with another medical person. I developed essentially a scoring system to objectively determine how impaired someone was from their alcohol ingestion. Five different categories of actions that can be done at the bedside in one or two minutes and is easily done by nursing staff based on the ability gives you a number. Because we expect people to resolve their alcohol-induced impairments, right? This scoring system goes from 20 to, to zero. And it should, it should you know, basically go in a straight, you know, fairly straight line, right? So what if their impairment starts to resolve through the hours um, but then stops resolving? This maybe is an indicator that something else is going on, right? Or maybe they don't resolve at all. That's a big problem and bears, hey, I need to look at this person more closely, So it's being used, um, I'm aware of hospitals in several states that are using it. I believe it's being used in Kaiser Center in Southern California as part of their psychiatric evaluation. So I'm, I'm thrilled. What would your final thoughts that you would want people to know about poisons, toxins, venoms? What I'd like to leave people with is the idea that they should go out and enjoy the world because there's a lot in this world that on face value doesn't give us the information or the secrets that it's holding. And the more you look around, the more you notice, and the more you investigate, you might find that things are much more interesting than they first appear. Absolutely. Dr. Jason Hack, Professor of Emergency Medicine, Toxicology Expert, National Research Award winner, photographer and inventor. Thank you so very much for spending some of your time with us today and lending your expertise. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me your time and hopefully um, people enjoyed this. And I, I look forward to a long, fruitful career here at ECU. 
Well, that's it for Season 3, Episode 5 of Talk Like a Pirate. That was a lot of fun talking with Dr. Hack and all of the different things that he's involved with. However, I may have to invest in some snake-proof boots at this point. Until the next time, please stay safe and healthy. And don't forget, always be yourself unless you can be a pirate. Then always be a pirate.